This is So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show we have Rhiannon Rosalind. She's the president and CEO of the Economic Club of Canada. And you know, this was one of those interviews that I invite her on the show because I had seen her uh, speak at some events in the past about mental health in the workplace in particular. So that's what I came into this wanting to talk about. It's an important issue. It's one that I talk about a lot mental health at work. When it happened, however, I don't know I don't know when it happened, but I was surprised. And this happens sometimes with these kinds of interviews. I was really surprised how personal we got, how deep into her story we got, and how, how personal all of this stuff is really for her. So I think it was actually ended up being one of my favorite conversations. It was raw, it was real, uh, and I left feeling really inspired. Uh, by everything that that uh, Rhiannon had gone through, uh, but then everything that she's been doing with it since. So, you know, I, I think that you'll take that from from this episode as well. Please uh, have a have a listen. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm going to remind you again later. Subscribe and like the episode on Apple Podcasts or whatever major podcast platform you subscribe. So, I'm Mark Hennick. This is So Called Normal, and this is my conversation with Rhiannon Rosalind. currently the president and chief executive officer of the Economic Club of Canada, which is a national forum where we speak uh, to business leaders and politicians and economists about the most important issues impacting our country. Um, And so for me, as a young woman, um, it's just a a kind of a strange fit at first. You know, when people see me, they don't expect Mm. the president and the CEO of the Economic Club of Canada to look like me or sound like me. Economics isn't exactly a a young woman's (laughs) It's not not the young woman's world or so that's the way that we were programmed, you know. And uh, so when I first stepped into the role, I was actually hired as an entry-level events coordinator straight out of university. Um, I was speaking at Ryerson, that's where I graduated from, and I was doing a project on uh, public policy and and poverty, Um, and I ended up meeting one of the board members of the Economic Club of Toronto, and he was very impressed with, you know, my my acumen around uh, speaking about issues that impacted the city and the country, um, and my desire to use corporate citizenship models to address some of these issues. So not just, you know, government being the solution to all things, but how can the business community really step in to help. And um, I took that job. I I didn't expect to take the job, but I went in and met with the CEO and I just felt in my heart Mm -hmm. that this was a place where I needed to be. And uh, the first day on on the job for me, we were hosting Bill Clinton, former president of the U.S. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, you know, find myself in this room full of very powerful people. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself as as the young woman that I was at that time, how and why did I end up in this space? Because Mm. for me, I was um, a child of a single mother. My mother was a survivor of domestic violence. Mm. Um, I had many different issues that I had to overcome in my life, being the first person in my family to get an education. And now I find myself in, you know, this very powerful, influential room. And so Mm. for me, it was really coming into my center and saying, what is my purpose in this? What am I supposed to be doing here? And for me, the, the answer became very clear that I was to be a bridge point for people, young people, um, people who felt as though they didn't belong in those kinds of spaces. Yeah. And so it took time for me to adjust and to really own my story and who I was in those spaces because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us want to put on that mask and pretend. Um, and at first, I you know I wanted to do that too. I didn't want to be found out. Right. Um, and uh, once I let that go and I stepped into this idea that I was here for a reason and I was here to represent a voice that hadn't been represented, things started to shift and I grew confidence quickly. Um, at about the six month mark of, of working for the club, I asked the president and CEO if he would sit down and hear a few ideas I had to really expand the club and to bring more people into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he listened and he and he heard me out. And one of my, my biggest ideas was, why don't we rebrand the Economic Club of Toronto to the Economic Club of Canada? Mm-hmm. Why don't we start to build a model where all Canadians can have a voice? Because it's not just Bay Street. Yes, 
Bay Street and Toronto is the financial center and, and an engine for Canada. But there are so many ideas and voices that need to be heard. And the unification of this country is really important to me. It always has been. Um, and I think that if we're truly going to lead on the global scale and innovate, then we need to really come together and realize who we are. And a big part of who we are is also recognizing the indigenous voices of this country um, and and bridging those together. So to make a long story short, he ended up allowing me to start to implement that program and that led um, uh, the Economic Club team to make me vice president in a very short period of time. Um, Mark Adler was the founder and CEO at the time, and he looked the part. And so when mm. we would walk into boardrooms, you know, he would he would step in as, you know, the person they expected to see. Right. But then he would take a step back and he would allow me to speak mm -hmm. and he would allow me to share my ideas. And so he really opened a door for me as a young woman to be able to be heard in spaces that normally I just wouldn't have earned right, that right yet right. because of all of that stigma because and, and of the stigma because of age because yeah. of this idea that we need 10 letters behind our names right. before our ideas matter it also helps if you're a rich white male 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah. and so for all of those reasons and then some um but what was really special and again i'm i'm such a believer in you know universal order and things sort of happening for a reason um in 2010 um our ceo decided that he wanted to run in the federal election. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was creating a, a strategy and a plan for if he were to run and if he were to win, who would take over um, running the economic club. And of course, politics is fickle. Mm -hmm. Nobody nobody knows upon entering if they're going to win or lose. Um, the, the, the plan was in place that I would step in as president and CEO if he won. Mm -hmm. I didn't ever think he would. Mm -hmm. um, I said yes, really resting on the idea that it's not going to happen. <laughs> so it's okay. And don't I look great to say that I'll do it, um, but don't actually have to. So right. I was really resting on that. Um, and um, of course, when the election was was snap called that year, I was now nine months pregnant with my first child. My husband and I were expecting at the time. And so again, all signs pointed to like, there's no way that this is going to happen because it can't. Right. Um, there's just no way. But it did. He right. was elected uh, May 2nd, 2011. May 23rd, I had my first child. Uh, so two weeks before having that baby, I stepped into the role as president and CEO. And I can tell you, um, I've I've struggled with many things up and down throughout my life, um, coming from the background that I came from. And there was intense trauma and addiction in my household mm. and a pattern that I repeated early on in my life. And, um, you know, anxiety, depression, all of it, I've, I've seen, I've shook hands with. With. Um, but that was one of the hardest times in my life. Um, mm. Stepping into that role, um, the weight of feeling like I had to prove something to absolutely everyone and didn't know whether I had that to prove to myself yet. Right. Um, being a new mother and just that whole thing for women, it is such a big transitioning point. Um, it is scary. Um, you know, there's no rule book, there's no handbook, and there's so many people around that tell us what that looks like or what right. that's supposed to be. So for me, I had a lot of naysayers saying, are you just out of your mind? You can't be taking over a right. national organization two weeks before having a child. Um, but here I am and I did. And, um, you know, I'm a mother of two now. Um, I've been the owner of the Economic Club of Canada um, for a couple of years. So I ended up buying the entire organization right. and I started the Junior Economic Club again because I wanted to be that bridge point right. for um, young people to start being involved in these conversations. Yeah. You know, you have you have such an incredible story, you know, right from your very earliest days and to really be able to do something that not only was not expected of you, it sounds like, but you, you had some real barriers uh, to overcome. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about those early days? Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Toronto, uh, Bathurst and Finch area in North mm -hmm. York. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the easiest thing to do um, for anyone who's who's sort of growing up in, in a um, in a situation where there's been trauma mm. is to 
become a part of that trauma Mm. to, you know, it's literally in our DNA as we come into the world when, you know, if our parents have been suffering, um, that is literally passed on to us, that suffering, that intergenerational. And that that was the case for you, your mother. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so my mother, you know, was a child of the same. She was Mm. a child of alcoholics. You know, there was poverty. There was different things that were impacting her life. Mm. And so, again, it's it's not that we actively choose to do this, but when we aren't getting getting the healing that we need, um, we end up taking those things forward. And we do the best that we always can. We're all always doing the best that we can. Um, But sometimes we just aren't conscious about what it is that we're holding. So for me, um, early on, um, drugs and alcohol became something that I felt comfortable with and that I wanted to experiment with. It was a way for me to release some of that pain that I was experiencing. And How, and, how did your mother deal with that, being a single mother at the time? Um, it was so hard. And I'm lucky, you know, my grandmother was involved in raising me. I had uncles around, but everybody had their struggles. Sure. My mom obviously having to work, you know, day and night, sort of multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. And, you know, it's, um, it's scary, I think, for a parent, especially as I'm a parent now to watch your child go down that same road that you went down to Mm -hmm. look for the answers that you didn't find. Mm -hmm. And so it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, when um, when the parent doesn't know themselves how to deal with that pain and trauma, how can they really provide any guidance? I mean, you know, you can say whatever you want to your children, but your actions are what your children see. Mm -hmm. And so my mom was also using, you know, in order to deal and cope. And um, from an early age, that was was something that I was pulled into. And I really surrounded myself with people who were broken like me, Mm -hmm. because that makes you feel okay. That's there's safety in that in so many ways. And so when did the when did the moment come, though, that you started to have a a revelation or realization that you could break out of that cycle? So at 15 years old, um, I had been kicked out of school. Um, I failed my entire year of grade 10. I was getting involved with a a crowd of people who were lost. Um, I was experimenting now, not just with, you know, marijuana or alcohol, but I was going down the road of, um, you know, designer drugs, MDMA, crystal meth. Um, And um, I was starting to really lose myself. I was, you know, down to, you know, 100 and something pounds. Um, And uh, I woke up one morning after just a really crazy night of partying and I was washing my hands in the sink and I happened to catch a glimpse of my eyes in the mirror and I realized I hadn't looked at myself and looked into my own eyes in a really long time. Mm. And when I looked into my eyes, um, something happened. I saw myself and I knew this feeling started to swell up inside of me, this emotion. I knew this is not my path. Mm. And I took a pen and a paper uh, very dramatically. I ran outside. I just needed to get out. I couldn't I couldn't breathe inside. And I went out into a large field that was across the street from the apartment that I lived in. And I started to just write. And I started to write and write and cry and cry. And I just thought, I am being called to do something so much bigger than this, not repeat this cycle. Um, I've got to get to school because I don't think I'm going to be a rock star. Um, <laughs> and um, I got to was, get... Was that your, your career plan It was kind of my fallback. I was like, yeah. I'll just be a rock star. That'll work. Um, <laughs> well, you, and and, you kind of uh, are now, though. So <laughs> in a way, in the economics weird world. economic rock star, whatever <laughs> that is. Um, but I, uh, yeah, just started to write a list of goals and um and then I started to follow through on those goals. It was hard. I mean, mm. I had to break out of friend groups. I had to get um, sober. And for me, sober meant not doing those drugs. I was still using alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but abstinence from the drugs? Yeah, yeah. abstinence from the drugs. Um, and then changing schools, changing neighborhoods, um, doing everything that I could to sort of reset. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the end of my graduating year um, in high school, I was um, on honor roll wow. and I was voted most dedicated student, uh, which <laughs> was pretty hilarious. Um, but did, I, did you have I any, worked really hard. Yeah, sure. Did you have any uh, mentors or people who really um, helped you along the way at that point? Or I it... did. There was a couple teachers um, that saw me because I was so used to not being seen. Right. Um, in school, as a kid who was coming from the background I came from, I really found that the system just kind of pushed you through. Mm. So I didn't have the foundational reading and math skills from really early on, but I kept 
being passed. And mm-hmm. so I kept losing confidence more and more because I was in a classroom and I didn't I didn't know how to perform. So I thought I was stupid. Mm. Um, and I really took that in. I struggled with that for so long. I had one teacher in grade 11, which was the first year that I was trying to sort of get myself back together, who just saw me. Mm. She, you know, just saw and she kept sort of indicating to me that I was so bright and um, I'll cry right now thinking about it because when you're when you're told you're bright when you when you didn't think you were it does something and um, it's a gift I try to give back to the to the youth that I work with now um, because they have so much but sometimes in our current system and in our current programming our measure of success and our measure of if we're good enough is a grade on a test mm. or, you know, how well you can read a sentence or, or solve an equation. But there's so much more to who we are as human beings, our emotional intelligence, um, our connection uh, to each other and the planet. And I just meet so many young people who might not have the the school smarts yet Mm -hmm. because they've had other things they've had to deal with, but they have so much inside of them. And if I can see them the way that I was seen at one point, it changes everything. Well, and I find sometimes too, teachers, parents, adults in general, uh, seem to assume that young people know that they're enough. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, both personally and working with other young people, they often don't. They need to be told uh, that they're seen and that they're enough. And only only we ourselves can fill that hole, but we have to be led back yes. to ourselves in order to know how to do that. And, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different work in order to heal myself. And mm-hmm. I just very publicly uh, yesterday even talked about the fact that once I graduated school and continued on and I got married and had children and I was seeing so much success in my career at such an early age, that became a really beautiful place for me to hide Mm. because I could sum up my traumatic story in a few sentences. I was, you know, the one who made it. Mm. I was the one who broke a chain, Um, but silently I was still struggling. And so in 2017, um, my stomach lining started to completely erode. Mm. Um, I was drinking um, excessively, uh, not to party, to deal with stress, to deal with anxiety. Um, So this was quiet drinking at home after putting the children to bed. Well, so at this point you have two kids, you're a CEO. Two kids, I'm a CEO. I, um, yeah, I'm a wife. I, you know, homeowner. I'm doing a massive commute every day back and forth to get downtown. Um, And I'm internalizing, internalizing, internalizing so much stress. I don't even realize it. As a woman, I'm trying to be perfect. I'm trying to eat well. I'm trying to work out every day. um, And I just can't quite get it. I can't get where I want to go and I don't understand why. And I become addicted to work um, and I become addicted to accolades outside of myself. Like if I didn't get some kind of recognition or pat on the back or or like reward for something I was doing, I was feeling empty and I was really embarrassed about that. Um, And um, anyway, so what ended up happening and it's so amazing how our body holds so much information so Mm. you know emotionally when we keep things in and our whole society is taught to keep things in right we're not supposed to go in to the workplace and say hey i'm feeling really sad today or i'm feeling really anxious or i'm we're just supposed to keep it in but our body stores that and there's only so much you can hold and so you know a lot of people who start dealing with bouts of um, panic or bouts of anxiety it's really just your body not being able to hold it could have been something Thing that happened 10 years ago sure. that you didn't deal with but it's you know we're, we're a container and as we start to fill and fill and fill that container yeah. all of a sudden one day you're in the grocery store line seemingly nothing's wrong but you freak out yeah. and it's because your body just kind of had yeah. to release well and this seems like a, a, a an especially unique pressure for women in particular oh, yeah. who now are expected to be professionals at work who never show emotion because mm-hmm. you don't want to be seen as you know hysterical or weak or soft, or, or, or all, soft all these ridiculous labels mm-hmm. but then at home especially as a mother and a wife thinking that you have to fit that gender role probably oh, on some for level sure. that and you I, have to keep together for the family too i couldn't keep up right. i just didn't know how to keep up and i was trying so hard and so my body was my saving grace because my body said "Uh -uh, Mm. no 
can't do it anymore. And so it was right before my 10-year wedding anniversary. I was supposed to go on this really special trip and my in-laws were coming in to watch the kids. And I was, you know, so looking forward to going to Europe for the first time in my life. Um, And I landed in the emergency room a few days beforehand, got an emergency scope. And they just basically said, like, if you don't change your lifestyle, you this is this is what leads to stomach cancer. This is what leads to serious chronic conditions. So they gave me some pills in order to mask the pain for me to go on my trip. And I uh, used those pills, went on the trip, um, started again having some really deep realizations on the trip, realized I was unhappy in my marriage. Um, 14 years of being with someone, no distraction on this trip. And all of a sudden that started seeping out and I was so scared. And I just kept drinking and taking the pills to numb the pain. Um, and as we returned from the trip, I had planned, um, I'd raised half a million dollars in capital to do an exchange program with kids from all across the territory of Nunavut and all across Ontario. So I was bringing these 30 kids and we were going to live on the land in the Arctic. And then we were coming back to Toronto and we were supposed to be working around um, creating business ideas born out of truth and reconciliation. Mm. Really big, like heart felt project that was everything to me. So I kept taking the pills because I didn't have time to make the change yet. And Mm. I had so much responsibility. Went out onto the land, um, never felt more connected to this country in my life than being out living on that land. And um, a big storm rolled in on our final day and we were, we had to be rescued off of the land. It was very serious. I really was scared about all of the participants and our and our safety and security mm-hmm. as this storm swelled. But really, the storm was a metaphor for the storm that was swelling inside of me. Mm-hmm. I thought that I was going to die on this boat. We were, there was 10 foot swells, gear was being flicked over the side of the boat. I was like, just uh, people were being flung around, seasick all over each other. And I prayed for the first time ever. I don't know who I was really talking to, but I just thought if anyone's listening, um, is this it? Is this how it ends? Is this where I die? And the truth is, it is where I died because Mm -hmm. I got a message that day that I had to get well because that I had so much to do in this world and so many people that I could help if I could get myself well. Had had you um, died on that boat, would you have been happy with your life? Right, like, right. And um, that's the question. And I came back off that boat um, and I got home and I rolled up my sleeves and I said, it's time to get sober. It's time to get the alcohol out of the equation. It's time for me to be honest as hard as that's going to be. If I'm not happy in this relationship, if I'm not happy with the way things are going, only I can change that. Mm -hmm. And so that started um, what was the biggest transformational year of my life. And I'm only just coming out of it now. And it's uh, led me to um, be looking at all sorts of different modalities and healing modalities to really dive deep into that process, Um, whether it's working with different counselors or therapists, whether it was going to, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous for support, whether it was um, traveling the world, going to Nepal, going um, Mm -hmm. to different Eastern practice and meditation became a really big part of of my practice and coming and tuning back into myself. So yesterday I announced what is a new venture that we are getting ready to reveal and and start and that is the Global Institute for Conscious Economics. Mm -hmm. And what's that? uh, It is um, my, my new baby. It's my new uh, gift that I want to give to myself and to the world. It's a place where I want to have conversations with our business community um, about consciousness, um, about conscious leadership, about healing ourselves so that we can start to heal the way that we conduct business, the way that we design systems, an idea that profit can't be made at the expense of people. Mm -hmm. Profit can't be made at the expense of the planet anymore. That profit should be made. Um, Profit is good. Profit is part of sustainable development, but it needs to be done in harmony with people in the planet. Mm -hmm. And 
when I got up on stage in front of a thousand Bay Street leaders yesterday, I told my personal story of the struggles that I was facing not too long ago, which was a hard thing to do. But the reason why I did it is because I know that there were so many people in that room that were feeling the same things. Right. Um, 500,000 Canadians are calling into work sick each week due to mental health, depression, fatigue, yeah. anxiety. Well, and you've um, been learning a lot about this in your tenure as CEO. 100%. Club, right? And, yeah. you know, human capital is the most important thing for the new economy and for the information age going forward. But if we are all half broken going into our roles, um, mm. if we are not whole, if we are not in a place where we feel um we feel well, then how in the world can we keep putting more and more pressure, you know, on the backs of our people for economic growth and for economic prosperity? It just can't work that way. Well, and and what role do you think the the CEOs, the leaders in organizations have to play in making their companies uh, more balanced in that way? Well, you know, it sounds so woohoo to say it, but it starts with them doing their own personal healing. Mm. You cannot just put a meditation room in a in a you know headquarters and say well there it is or let's go work out and uh you know you'll get points for it can't work like that that's very surface do you think many business leaders and ceos are damaged people uh, unresolved we're all damaged sure we're all damaged in some way. We're we're all not damaged in reality, but we've become damaged. Yeah, Yeah, we think we're damaged. And the reason why we think we're damaged is because we haven't been taught how to truly express who we are. Mm. Every single one of us has trauma. I don't care if you grew up in the wealthiest home in in the, you know, world. I don't, it it, it doesn't discriminate. And it's relative in many ways. And it's it's, relative. Yeah, the meaning that you give it. And it doesn't, you know, it could be that you didn't feel seen or loved by your family. It could be that money was the only thing that showed you that you were loved. It could be that you grew up like me where you watched your family just struggling and hurt. Um, It could be any number of things. There's so many you know, there's such a broad range, but it really starts with that personal work, finding that whole space inside. And then from there, okay, how am I going to help my beautiful, you know, team of people that work for this organization? Mm -hmm. What is the spirit of this organization and how can it change? Mm -hmm. What kinds of products, what kinds of services, how will we innovate now that we're coming from that place? And I think for many years in the West, the chakra system is not something that everyone's familiar with, but it's the energy sort of systems of the body. And I really truly believe that in the West, we've been sort of stuck in the third chakra, which is our solar plexus which is our power center. It's where all of our will, our power, um, status, all of those things, it's good, good stuff. You need all of those things. But we've been stuck there for a long time, circling around, thinking that the meaning of life was material. The meaning of life was was status and wealth. Um, And I know now there's a shift coming and I'm seeing that we're moving as a society and as a planet to, you know, the love of power to the power of love. So we're moving up to that heart Mm -hmm. chakra and we're opening our hearts and we're starting to you're seeing it happening just the conversations like what you're leading Mm -hmm. you know talking about stigma talking about mental health and how it integrates into absolutely everything Everything. is really a part of it so this is conscious economics that's what we're doing right now we're having a conversation about conscious economics absolutely and what's what's the response that you got just yesterday speaking to these thousand business leaders you know suits and and crew cuts i had you know grown businessmen coming up with tears in their eyes to me yesterday i had women coming and surrounding me saying as the collective of the female we hear your cry because we feel it um i had you know, letters and emails and people looking me up to be able to say, how can I be involved? I had people who were scared shitless who wouldn't look me in the eye. Sure. I had people who were like, not me, like, yeah. you know, looking at their shoes. Like, Those are the ones who usually need it the most. Oh, I yeah, for yeah. sure. I had people pat me on the back and say, sorry, you had a tough year. Right. I mean, I had I had everything and then some in between. And that's OK. Yeah. That's OK. But what I'm trying to practice.
practice is just the power of vulnerability. Because if we can put a little bit of vulnerability back into everything that we do, that's where the change comes from. We're just human beings at the end of the day. Title, what I do, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm the same as you or, or, you know, anyone that there is. I'm the same as the man that's on the street or the young child that's finding their way. There's something that unites us all. Mm -hmm. And it's coming back to that and then saying, now let's innovate from there. Now let's create economic systems. Now let's talk about how we change our educational institutions, how we change the way that we relate to our indigenous peoples, Mm -hmm. um, all of those things. And, And again, I think there's such a a shift coming there because as I learn more about indigenous culture and I spend a lot of time in the Arctic regions of Canada and with First Nations people, I understand all the knowledge that's there, the knowledge Mm -hmm. of the planet, the knowledge of our spirits. Um, And I know that there's a shift where, you know, it's not us, the colonizer, coming to teach. Mm. It's now time for us to learn. Yeah, to draw it's, upon their wisdom. Now it's mm. time for us to draw upon the wisdom. But the problem is, is that we've broken so many people right. uh, as a collective. We've broken so many that a lot of those young people, they've forgotten their own power of their own wisdom. And so right now, the resurgence of um, the reclaiming of who they are, the reclaiming of languages, the reclaiming of, of tradition and making mm-hmm. that cool again mm-hmm. um, is so important. Yeah. And that's really something that I want to be a part of. Well, it seems like this shift is is relatively recent, too, certainly yes. in the mental health space, in the workplace wellness and incorporating vulnerability and balance into the workplace. Truth and reconciliation, certainly just in the last five to 10 years, it seems like from my vantage point anyway, we've made incredible uh, progress. I think we're still very early. But have you seen that in your work as well, you know, from when you were first starting out to now? Has the conversation changed? The conversation has definitely changed. People are more willing to speak, but I'm scared of where that's come from. Mm. So I think that, you know, when you have words like truth and reconciliation enter into the lexicon, everyone starts to be like, okay, better check those boxes, want to be seen as doing the right thing. But do you really know in your being and in your heart why you're doing it? I know there's a lot of leaders that say, okay, we'll do everything. We'll put the strategy in place. But do we have to keep talking about this? Or like, aren't we already finished now? Like, come on, like we've how long do we have to talk about something that happened a hundred years ago? But I rephrase the question to those people. And I think, you know, think of the one thing that hurt you the most as a human being. Was it the loss of your father? Was it some, you know, a time when your mother hit you or something? And and that replay of that emotion and how Mm -hmm. that you carry that. Are you over it? Is it just gone? Or did it impact you in a way that is deep and that you can't ignore? And I come back to this idea of this intergenerational trauma that exists. It's not going to be gone in an instant. And the healing of ourselves as the colonizer is part of the healing for the indigenous people sure. well, as unhealed might, as we are as unhealed as they are and it might take a generation to to change that intergenerational trauma well, that's the whole idea right i mean senator marie sinclair who was the chair of the truth and reconciliation commission said it will take seven generations right um and you know that's a really daunting feeling when people hear seven generations then they think okay well then i'm absolved because it's i can't do anything now that's seven generations but we can only get to that healing in seven generations if we take action now. Right, we step. have absolutely a part to play. Yeah. Yes. Do you see, especially in your work with uh, youth, with the Junior Economic Club, um, is the upcoming gener- does the upcoming generation tackle these issues, approach these issues differently than the current generation, which still largely has the power in our society? Yes and no. Mm. This upcoming generation, I have so much respect for. I have so much love in my heart for. But unfortunately, the systems that trained all of us who are kind of half working right mm. now um, are training them too. Right. And so 
I think that there's a call for more leaders to come forward to ignite our young people and to give them their power. Don't make them wait for their power. Give it to them now and watch them innovate. And that's a lot of the work that we do is putting our young people in the driver's seat. So last year, we brought Michelle Obama to Toronto for her first major address. And um, I donated half the capacity of the stadium to youth. And what I did is I asked the business leaders that were buying tables. So they were buying expensive tables. um, And I said that they were only allowed to fill their tables of 10 with five executives and that they Mm. had to leave the other five seats open. I got a lot of pushback for that. And then they were like, well, what do you mean? So we can't come unless we do. And I, yeah, that's, that's what it is. And they were like, well, what can't we bring our sons and daughters? And I said, well, you could buy a ticket for them elsewhere because you have that ability, but no, no, these seats are reserved. And what we did is we brought in youth that would not normally ever be enter a room like that would not ever get a seat at the table, Mm. would not ever be, you know, thought that they deserved to be there. Um, And the energy of what that created was a different kind of conversation. Mm. We were talking about the economics of equality with Michelle freaking Obama. (laughs) So let's do this in a different way. And what happened, and I kind of get tingles and chills just thinking about it right now, there was a transformation that was happening and it wasn't just for the young people in the room. It was for the C-suite executives. Mm. It's a different um, rebalancing of the power structure. It's a difference in reminding ourselves that a great idea uh, doesn't have to come only from a seasoned person who's mm. had uh, 50 years in you know, a career. Mm. Actually, innovation works the opposite way. It's the fresh eyes. It's mm. the fresh perspective mm. coming in mixed with you know, the foundational perspective. Sure. Wow, what happens when those things come together? And so our young people, you know, have to be reminded of their power. And our current educational, you know, institution doesn't really set it up that way. We're trying. There's a lot of really good stuff happening. My alma mater, Ryerson, I shamelessly speak about some of the work that they're doing because they're integrating entrepreneurial thinking into every single facet of what they do. Mm. Um, Their zone learning, their digital media zone, which is recognized as one of the top incubators in the world right now, is all a footprint of a university that was the underdog Mm. that didn't have the status and prestige against any of the other to say, okay, well, we don't have that, so let's do something different. And they're breeding a different culture of young people that are going into the world in a very different way. So it's pretty cool. So what what, uh, needs to still be done? How do we need to break the system or reinvent the system or even make minor adjustments? What what will continue this progress? I think, and this might sound a little radical, but, you know, I'm riding that wave. Um, (laughs) I think that we really need to teach our our youngest uh, people um, how to tap into themselves. Mm. Um, To me, that looks like meditation from kindergarten. Mm. Um, To me, that looks like incorporating some of that sort of self-actualization, self-realization, emotional intelligence being something that is celebrated, Um, creativity, innovation, not trying to box people, but allowing people to create their own box. Mm. So it's really an overhaul of all systems um, in so many ways. And that can't just happen in one sweep. But what we can do is start having the right conversations. And so what I'm dedicating every ounce of, you know, what I have inside of my body right now is to create a platform where we can start having these conversations. And it's not me that's leading the charge. Mm. It's all of us coming together and in truth having those conversations. But we've got to get really real about what's not working. And part of that is the most powerful people in the world admitting that they too are Mm. struggling or suffering. Um, And if we just release that out, everything starts to change. These two worlds, you know, the the personal, the the home life, your kids, your partner, whatever, your your, um, backstory, all that stuff. And the work world, you're climbing the ladder, your profession, your expertise. Is there such thing as a work-life balance that that it's a calculus of making sure we have equal measure of those two things or is it something more more integrated? I 
I know that there's no such thing as a work-life balance because if there was, I can't freaking figure it out. Um, <laughs> and you can figure out anything. I I'm mean, like falling <laughs> all the time. I can't surf that wave. Right. Um, so I don't see how anyone can really do it. Right. Um, I think that what it is is that those things are, we're one whole sure. individual. And, and we're, so I think we're fooling ourselves we're if we fooling think we're not ourselves. bringing work home, bringing home to we work. We 100% right? are. And so what we are is we're integrated beings and all of those different things that we do as beings are all integrated into one. So where we find the balance is finding the balance in ourselves. And when we find that balance in ourselves, we start to emanate that balance in everything else that we do. I say to my my employees all the time, which I don't even like calling them that because to me they're family um, in so many ways. But I say to my, you know, work family, um, tell me what's going on with your life. Like Mm. whatever you're coming in with, I want to know because I can't just assign you a task when you're struggling with something that's happening with your mother or your whatever. I need to rally around you there so I can nurture that part of you that's hurting so that then you can bring that energy back into this work. I don't need the energy of someone broken trying to hold it together, trying to piece something together. What will the result be? You know, it's not what we want. So Well, and I think leaders and, and especially um, HR professionals who haven't yet been exposed to, to a more holistic approach, they're afraid to do that because they don't have the skills. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. they can't do it. They're just afraid because they don't know how. But they need it, too. They need it, too. That's the thing. And just yeah. because you gave somebody a title, um, you know, just because you gave somebody a head of HR title doesn't mean that they don't need something, too. Yeah. They need some HR. You yeah. know, it's it's we all do. And so, again, I see, you know, these attempts of let's put a diversity and inclusion team in order and then that's going to fix it. No, diversity and, and inclusion has to be integrated into absolutely everything that we are as beings. It's not even about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. It's like that, are we including ourselves when we step into the world? Do we even know how to include ourselves? Are we included in what we do first and foremost? And then then can we include others? Until you come from a place of knowing that you belong, that you're enough, that you're everything, everyone else is competition. Everyone else is different, separate, other. And until we get into that place, we can't. We can't see each other as the interconnected beings that we are. We can talk about it all we want, but Mm. there's a difference between knowing and the wisdom of feeling that to be true. And so it just, we're not there yet, but that's okay because what we've started to do should not be ignored. And the even the start and the diversity and inclusion leaders and all of that, it's all in the right, it's coming from the right place, which is a huge start. Yeah. And we have to start riding that wave and the vibration of what that is um, to go into the next place. So yeah. I don't want to at all, you know, point my finger and say that those things aren't good. They are definitely a starting place, but we have to go a little deeper right. and it the answer is always you that sounds so strange but not at all i mean you have to be able to integrate uh, this experience that you're not just wearing a shirt that says diversity inclusion or mental health awareness or whatever or or even i see this all the time people coming to terms with their past experience as well uh, especially if it's a psychiatric diagnosis sometimes they really want to come out strong and lean into that label and that whole label becomes everything about them mm-hmm. and they don't realize that that's actually just one small part of your experience that it actually means you know th- th- there's lots of other things happening there too but I think in some ways you have to start there, right? Because you have to own the label. You have to figure it out. You have to make it black and white for a little while in order to actually let it integrate and become deeper and settle into you. But we're always constantly evolving. And so even in a recovery process or even in that process of for the first time being able to wear a label, Mm. um, everything's always shifting and changing. But we can't cling to it, We can't cling to it. So there's nothing, nothing's permanent, you know, and everything's always changing. And if we go back to, you know, Buddhist philosophy, that really is the Mm. crutch of it. And if we look at all of these different philosophies and the wisdom of, you know, world religions and everything, there's certain universal pieces that are are fundamental to them all. And Mm. I think that it's, it's recapturing those things and knowing in our hearts that, you know, if we're trying trying to permanently, I mean, for me, I was the young woman 
uh, that was a business leader that was different. So what happens when I'm not young anymore? Right. You know what I mean? Then who am I? Right. And, and you know, all of us have these different things that we cling to. I was the party girl. I was the fun one. What happens when I don't feel fun today? Right. Who am I then? Yeah. Or, you know, it's just, it's realizing that, you know, in order to really know oneself is to know that oneself is always changing. Yeah, and my, um, my, that's one of the mantras that have gotten me through almost everything, the idea that this too shall pass. Yes. And it applies both to the things we love and the things that we hate. Yeah, uh, And absolutely. I think that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful experience to it's know that. It's so beautiful, but I think we need to really wrap our minds around the this shall pass for the things we love. Yes. Because we are so, it's easier for us to accept this shall pass for the things that aren't good, actually. Sure. It's the things that are, um, you know, that that we don't want to see right. go and pass. And so, again, when we remind ourselves that even that good thing will pass, we cherish and relish in the moment of now. So yeah. I know I look at my children really differently these days. Um, maybe it's an afternoon and the sun is just beaming through in the right way and it's hitting my little boy's hair and there's just this stillness and I take that and I think I'll just eat that mm. minute right up right now into my heart. It's one of my gifts of this life. And it's just so simple, but we are so busy and distracted. We forget that um, there are gifts every single day. Yeah, all, and all, us. all those gifts that we're missing out on every single day because we're not paying attention. 100%. And there's those gifts. Um, it sounds so strange to talk in, in this beautiful space and to say there's those gifts in the workplace, there's those gifts in the economy, there's those gifts in our political institutions. But we have to remember who we are first in order to find them. And once we remember who we are, we can really start to rebuild something. And I think of Canada as this vast and beautiful land. Um, we aren't a huge population. And I think that we really have an opportunity as a country to lead and to lead the world in this. In so many ways, there's such interconnection into our our land mass and who we are. And I think we forget that when I went and did my journeying and some work in the Arctic, I never felt more Canadian to know that part of our country. I really never did. And we were bringing kids um, from inner city who just wouldn't have that experience because, you know, it's about seven thousand to ten thousand dollars a flight mm. to get you know from one of these arctic communities just to ottawa or whatever else like people don't realize there's many barriers to that but when you get there and you get to experience that mm. and know that part of our country you start to really kind of know where we are there's a beautiful spirit of this country that we forget about right yeah. now i have and, an experience eating eating bison in the yukon <laughs> i was like this is the most canadian thing i've ever done that's so amazing <laughs> and it's like we've we've resolved to classifying ourselves by these like a beaver tail right, and uh, right. uh, whatever. But there's something so beautiful about this wilderness, this yeah. land um, that we are the north yeah. um, and um, and the spirit of what that is. And if we would just soak into that a little bit and stop trying so hard to be, you know, the U.S. or stop trying right. so hard to, you know, our cities are, you know, better than yours or whatever else. It's like we have something that nobody else has just like other places have something that nobody else can have too. True. So what are our things and how do we redefine ourselves um, and start to really lead from a place of knowing who we are as opposed to, you know, pretending or being nervous about right. who we're not? So, I mean, certainly after the last year, but if you were able to go back in time and uh, look at that 15-year-old girl's eyes in the mirror again, uh, who would you tell her that she is mm. or that she would become? I would tell her that um, I'm crying, so that's why my voice is doing this. That's how <laughs> good so the good. question was. Um, I would tell her that she is um, somebody that's here to heal the planet um, and that she has a very important job to do um, and that if she could love herself um, fully, then that love could emanate out to everyone she interacts with and that she's a gift and life's a gift. And um, and that is something that everyone should know about themselves because yeah. it's true. 
Would she have believed you at the time? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. She would have rolled yeah. a big, huge spliff and yeah. drank, a, drank a 40-ouncer in the park and threw up. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. And you that, know? Was, that was a necessary part of the journey, right? It's okay. a necessary part. And, and that's the thing, too. It's For me, it's been really making peace with my shadow side, mm. with some of the dark sides. Um, you know, we are so scared to admit when we have a feeling that isn't acceptable. So, you know, if I was jealous at one point or if I was envious of something else or if whatever it may be, and it's it's okay. We've got to accept and not push and ignore those things that trickle up that, you know, aren't the best qualities because it isn't until they're acknowledged mm-hmm. and sort of loved as well that we break out of them. Right. Um, and so, you know, nobody's perfect. And I think that um, the journey is, it goes on until we take right. our very last breath. It well, really and, does. Well, and those experiences, those emotions, they're all there for a reason. They're, they're uh, not random. Well, you've certainly been through, a, a, you know, now that you're on the largely the other side of this uh, past year, this, this difficult year that, that others have, uh, have called it for you. Um, what's next for you after all this? Um, it's, uh, well, continuing every day in my practice and what I've learned because it's so easy for us to slip Mm-hmm. to slip all the time and to just kind of get lazy and, and, and just put one foot in front of the other. Mm. So for me, it's really trying to stay present and in my practice. Yeah, recovery um, is not just a one-off, no, I'm done. No, <laughs> definitely not. And, yeah. you know, you could be doing great for years and then all of a sudden something comes up, right? And if you don't if you don't have the tool in the box at that time, then it's really easy to slip. So I think first and foremost, it's taking care of me um, and making sure that I'm okay. That's my... That's each of us have one thing we have to do, and that's that to take care of ourselves. If we each would just do that work, um, really, truly do that work, there's no need for extra legislation and rules and this and that because everything would go into balance if we would just take responsibility for that. So that's first and foremost. But the the next phase is is to grow the Global Institute for Conscious Economics and to really start to promote this kind of dialogue that we're having now on the global scale. Um, so our first major event will happen in Toronto uh, this spring. Um, so um, everyone can uh, stay tuned for that. Our, our website, consciouseconomics.ca, will be up in a matter of days. And that is really where I'm going to pour some attention. Um, We're starting the Junior Consciousness Club as well, um, which is really just the next iteration of what the Economic Club has been and what the Junior Economic Club has Mm -hmm. been. It's just bringing consciousness into the fold. We will still be teaching young people about business and finance and economics, but through a consciousness lens. So I'm, I'm really excited about what that looks like, what that opportunity looks like. And um, I feel invigorated again and I feel, you know, ready to rock and roll. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I look forward to seeing all these things. Are you happy? I really am happy. I'm happy. Yeah. It makes me want to cry to say that. I really am happy. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're a beautiful soul. All right, that's my conversation with Rhiannon Rosalind, president and CEO of the Economic Club of Canada. That was one of the, the uh, you know, I, I love all of these interviews, these conversations that we do, but I think that was one of the most impactful for me uh, in the room and in the moment to feel the emotion. Uh, I hope you could you could feel it uh, through your earbuds or whatever you're listening on in your car uh, as well. That, that was a really rewarding conversation. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or even if you didn't, please head over to uh, Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, uh, leave us a rating. Those subscriptions and ratings really make a huge difference. Uh, share the show with your friends and networks and families. Your support uh, really means a lot in, in spreading spreading the good news about mental health and, and resilience. Uh, head over and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever. I'm everywhere, at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K, uh, and the website markhennick.com slash so-called normal. Uh, if you want to try out a free trial of online, safe, effective, highly trained, good quality psychotherapy, go to betterhelp.com slash mark. That's betterhelp.com slash M-A-R-K. Enter the promo code mark, that's me, M-A-R-K, and you'll get that free trial uh, for you to to experience some psychotherapy. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, This has been So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick.